Are you a business owner looking for real advice and input? You're in the right place. From concept to launch to growth, funding and beyond. Welcome to Startup Hustle with your hosts. One once sold a business for $150 million. The other, the author of Million Dollar Bedroom. Here are your hosts of Startup Hustle, Matt DeCourcy and Matt Watson. And we're back. Another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here with Matt Watson. Hi, Matt. What's going on, man? I'm just another, just doing a little more Q time today, baby. Just trying to another day on the Startup Hustle virtual recording studio, and you know, lots of stuff to talk about. With us today, we have Alicia Carlin, who is the VP of Global Touring and Talent for AEG Presents. Good morning, Alicia. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're we're glad to have you, and you know, we've had a lot of discussion about live events and tours and done a lot of different stuff. And obviously that's, I think everyone's well aware of this situation with sports and live events. And I thought we could take a different direction today and talk about from an entrepreneur standpoint, some of the hustle that is required to make these events happen, which obviously are now paused, but the events that are now on pause, you were planning quite a long time ago, right? Yeah, the events, you know, all events uh, have have a long lead cycle, uh, for the most part, especially music festivals and larger scale events. Um, so most of our, our things are 365 enterprises. That, you know, I, I think one of the things and and before we get too far into this, today's episode of Startup Hustle is brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Well, I think from from the the host and co-host standpoint, I mean, Matt and I, well, I, I have a history in the music industry and, and ticketing and some stuff like that, more so over the last few years as an attendee. Um, one of the things, and we were talking about this before we hit record, you know, Full Scale has a suite at our local venue. And one of the things that's always kind of interesting is after a show ends, you, you know, everyone else leaves the venue, but the suite's still open for an hour and you get to watch the army of people come in and deconstruct. And, you know, that's just a small part of everything that goes in. Um, one of the things that you have been, you have participated in over the years is the Electric Forest Festival. That's what it's called, right? That's correct. Yep. Electric yeah. Forest. And, and that's, that's been an ongoing annual festival for a while. Um, you know, as far as, as those kind of festivals, you know, that. The festival kind of, uh, in general, really started to boom again about, what, 10, 15 years ago? Is that... Um, so, so Electric Forest um, was uh, launched in 2011. Um, it came after the um, Rothbury Festival, which was its predecessor on the same site. Um, the Rothbury Festival is kind of like a legendary event um, in 2008 and 2009. Um and then we all know what happened around that time, but music festivals in this country kind of, you know, paused a bit. A lot of a lot of the festival market contracted um, after 2008 and um, and then took a couple of years to come back. And then uh, we rebranded and relaunched with um, new partners, uh, which uh, are Insomniac Events and Madison House Presents relaunched Electric Forest together in in 2011. Um, with a new direction on the same, on the same grounds. 
So if, if you want to start a music festival, I mean, how, how does that even, I mean, obviously you got to have the idea for it, but where do you even start? Like you, you said the Rothbury festival and, you know, using those same grounds, but I mean, how, how does, how does from an entrepreneur, I mean, the, you have to look, I guess any new festival is a startup. So how do you go about, how do you have a music festival startup? Well, I think first of all, um, you should be in the music business, <laughs> right? <laughs> Step Probably one. good advice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot of people think that they can, you know, start a festival because I have a farm or this, or, you know, I know a place, um, but you need a lot more than, than a venue. Um, you need to have, you know, deep relationships um, with the people in operations and ticketing um, and, and fans that trust you uh, and artists and artist teams that trust you as well. So, you know, I think that that's kind of step one. You know, uh, I w- I've been at Madison House Presents for, um, which is a division of AEG for going on 15 years. And um, they specialized in boutique events and festivals that were really built around specific artists and their vision um, and a deep community vibe to them. So with the string cheese incident that came, um, they had annual events uh, in Oregon at a place called Hornings Hideout. And we did lots of festivals at that location um, and the big summer classic tour and festival. Um, so, so there's a long history of working with a lot of artists. Um, number two, you do obviously need to have a venue that makes sense, especially for a festival. If you're going to be doing a camping festival in particular, there aren't as many of those in the, in the U S you know, they're, they're really all over the place in, in Europe and they have a way longer history with camping festivals than we do in America. Um, you know, um, Bonnaroo, um, was kind of in 2002, right. That's when they launched, but, um, that was kind of the, the rebirth of the large scale camping festival in America. So it's a rather new proposition in terms of, you know, where we're at in, in music history here in, in America. So um, those are just a couple of the first items that, that you need. Matt, what's, what's, have you, Matt, what's a music festival that you've been to? <laughs> I've never been to one. What? No. Not even not like even the like local, yeah, not even like Ford Fest or Lollapalooza or when it, when it toured or anything like that. I think the only, I mean, I think the closest thing I've ever been to is like a all day concert, like red, red, white, and boom. I think that's not really a music festival, right? Well, what, well, that's, that's actually a good point. Let's define what a music festival is because I think that might have a different definition. I think a music festival um, well, should I take a stab at it or what, I mean, I'm Matt, not what do you define it? <laughs> what, right. Matt, what do you, what do you define a music festival as? Uh, I think it's gotta be more than one stage and potentially more than one day. I don't know if it has to be more than one day, but maybe more than um, one stage. Yeah. I think I, mean, more, I would, tell I would you say bluegrass. Mo- multiple performers. Multiple performers. multiple performers through throughout at least one entire day. So more I than would, say like four performers because you yeah. like any show could have like three opening acts or whatever. So it's got to be more than that. 
Well, I don't know. More, it, it, I'll it, go with more than four performers on a stage at a place. <laughs> I I I kind of, I do kind of like the the multi stage definition. I know you said like the tell your tell your ride festival. There are a lot of iconic one. festivals though that just yeah. run on one, but are maybe multi day. Right. Well, well then and, there and, you go. And festivals are usually a destination that people travel to, right? They're not necessarily that just the locals go to. Again, I mean, it just really they they, they come in all shapes and sizes. I, well, I say that because I feel like there's not a lot of music festivals in Kansas City, and so maybe that's why I've never really been to any. True, there used to be one in in uh, outside of Lawrence called Wakarusa. Yep. That was, you know, uh, uh, important in the in the jam band festival scene for sure. Well, so we have like Red, White and Boom every year, which is like a mm-hmm. kind of top 40 music. Right. And then we have Rock Fest every year. So maybe See, those, those are those sort are, of those are, still, those are still music festivals. I think Rock that Fest would be a clue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ah, there you go. But but I think that they do a lot of these on different scales, too. And Matt, you said that there aren't a lot in Kansas City. There actually are quite a few. I think a lot of them are just very, very niche. They're not promoted as heavily as some of these mega fests. So, you know, I think think the Christian music ones, do those count? Sure. There's some of those, too. I don't think the genre matters, actually. And then I think, you know, one of the things that I think that that I, you know, all right. So I'll tell you, I, I have gone to a ton of live music in my life, but I haven't been a huge festival person. And there's a few, there's a few reasons why. Um, I mean, sometimes it's, it's the, the hustle and bustle, the time in between artists and acts that it sometimes takes to get them set up. And I think that that's gotten a little better over time. Um, and then I just kind of like to, you know, so I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, Alicia and I know each other through Joel Cummins, uh, my co-author of The Realist Guide to Successful Music Career and the keyboardist in Humphreys McGee. I like to just hear those guys play for like three hours. And you don't, and some, in some music festivals, you get these smaller doses and you get a lot of different things. Now, on the flip side of that, I, I like the new music and the eclectic nature of festivals as well, possibly seeing a whole bunch of people. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, you know, as far as the camping fests, I think uh, now that I'm in my mid forties, um, those, those haven't felt as appealing as they might've 20 years ago. They definitely, um, when you're talking about, you know, mass camping, you know, tend to skew younger for obvious yeah. reasons, yeah. but you know, yeah. um, there's, there's options for everyone, you know, at a lot of the, the bigger festivals for, you know, more creature comforts. Um, as as you get older well i so, just heard about this thing called the fire fest and i i booked my ticket i'm really excited for it I, yeah. I spent like an extra five grand and i'm doing some vip package or something Dude, get, so, the, get the villa get the villa yeah you want a villa. i'm going all out so i'll let you know how it goes dude hey, you can luck. afford it you go all in get the plane get the villa and make sure you load your wristband up with a ton yeah. of virtual cash There's like a special yacht to come get me and like yeah. all this stuff yeah so yeah i'll be on it i'll be waiting for you i, I was a wondering what first event for you <laughs> <laughs> so you know it's it, well we can start there because i you know one of the things that you know i think a lot of people had maybe heard of the fire fest i think more people have heard of it now for what yes. a disaster and a 
you know, and it's really going to probably be the prime example of poor event planning and for, for a long, for a long time. But, you know, I, I've watched that documentary a couple of times and I find it to be really fascinating because as an entrepreneur and a startup founder, it was clearly not well thought out. There weren't, um, one of the things that we always tell people when we talk to them about their, you know, people say, Oh, I'll have this done in six months. Oh, so you mean a year? And these things take a lot longer. And I'd like to go back in the timeline of planning, because I don't think that most people listening understand how far ahead you have to book some of these acts and start reserving their time. And Alicia, you have a pretty significant history working as, as a booking agent and a talent buyer. So you, can we talk a little bit about like that whole process? Because I, I think it's really fascinating. I think a lot of people don't understand how much capital, time, effort, planning, and logistics go into all that. Sure. So, I mean, as we've gotten, um, the timeline kind of ebbs and flows. About 10 years ago, it was not as um, far out as it is now. Um, right now, it can be anywhere from, you know, 18 months to eight months, some something in that range for, for the larger festivals in advance. Um, and I would say um, it used to be more like six to nine months, you know, and, and things are contracting a bit again. I've noticed in the past couple of years because um, that super long lead time um, that everyone was planning around um, has, has changed a little bit. But I would say if you're, you're talking about about eight months uh, in advance is when you start really booking for the next event. Um, and, and that's a lot of artists, you know, that you're dealing with, negotiating with, trying to route, in my case, on Electric Forest, a lot of people coming from, from Europe, they're planning their entire year, uh, a lot of times two, in two-year kind of uh, segments, you know, when they're going to be in different parts of the world, at least when you're talking about internationally touring acts. So, they know that they're going to be in Europe in these two months, in Australia for these months, maybe in Asia. And then, you know, a lot of them know at least a year in advance, if not more, when they're going to be touring in the U.S. So um, that's one thing. Also, the summer festivals in Europe are a factor for a lot of our events here in America and festivals. And people, you know, decide that one year they're going to be in America in June and the next year they're going to be in Europe in June and July. So you you knowing that in advance, even two years in advance, when you're going to have the next chance at somebody that they're going to be here is important. So, again, just kind of being in the mix and having those relationships um, as a talent buyer with the artist side and the agents, you can really get a better sense of what's going to be available. Um, so you're not, you know, kind of shooting blind or um, sending offers for things and wasting time that are never going to pan out. So when it when it comes to budgeting or planning for a festival, you know one of the unknowns is obviously advanced ticket sales. And you know it, it, what? How, how do you how do you make some? How do you make any determination as to whether or not uh, an act that you're booking is going to going to fill seats? Um. Well, that's a, that's a the million dollar question. Um, but a lot of it is, is, you know, track your own track record, your own gut, your own, you know, instincts about something. And also there's so much data now, um, that you're able to kind of 
really critically look at things as well. Um, you know, streaming and other ticket sales patterns and radio play, um, demand, uh, social following. You kind of have to look at all of them and no one metric really is going to determine that. But with if you're a good talent buyer and you have experience, you're going to probably take a lot of bets and, and the good ones make good bets more often than, than not. So um, it's really just like having a, a pretty good understanding of the landscape, I think. You know, there's one thing that I've already found in common with Matt Watson and music festivals is I usually have to book his time at least eight months in advance as well. So, you know, and right. his, his, his rider is, is incredible. At one point, you know, when the, when we finally made it onto the charts for the podcast, Matt's demands went up. He needed a tour bus. He wanted a live, what was it? A seahorse in the, and, and four pounds of, of what was it? Green M&Ms. Yeah. Don't forget my M&Ms. So, you know, one of the, one of the, for those of you listening while you're in quarantine, uh, an interesting thing that you might to entertain yourself is look up concert writers, uh, now, a writer is is are some of the things that um, an act will require, and some you know backstage or, or however they want things. Some artists are known for being particularly complicated, and then others are remarkably easy to deal with. Uh, in a festival setting, how do you how do you coordinate all of the activity that goes on behind the stage? Because, you know, I mean, it, just from a preparation standpoint and all that other stuff, how, how do you go about even giving any consideration to that? Well, we have thousands of people that, that work on Electric Forest, for example, um, and each, you know, department. Um, there's artist transportation, there's artist relations, there's artist hospitality. Um, each of those departments is is kind of staffed with their own small army of people running you know, that specific department. We have fueling, we have site ops, we have production, stage hands. I mean, the list goes, goes on and on and on. Lighting crews, sound crews, techs. Um, so it really is a, a, a massive amount of coordination that is what goes into this, you know, year of planning. Um, you know, as soon as the festival ends, you know, everybody takes uh, a little sigh, a little break, maybe a week or two, and then gets right back at it for the next year to make sure that those things are all accounted for. Uh, artist hospitality is a super important department um, because like you're saying, the riders and, and, you know, a lot of people, you know, do make fun of those riders or the items that are on it. But for the most part, those are just things that you would want as a touring musician so that you can, live a normal life and and eat healthy and have the things that you like while you're you know touring from city to city um the mass majority of those things are pretty pretty standard pretty normal you know fruit and peanut butter and jelly and you know some turkey sandwiches um and Gatorade you know so uh, you do have to take into consideration that you're dealing with people uh touring around the world and they just want to you know eat what they want to eat at a festival setting, we have catering, um, and the riders are more limited to, you know, some key items um, outside of the headliners. But pretty much, I would say, more or less, you don't encounter too much of the of the crazy requests. There's always a few. 
Yeah, I think you had you had a really good point there. So in, in, in my first book, Balance Me, which I interviewed Joel Cummins for, part of why I thought he would be uh, it's such an interesting interview for the book about finding some balance in your life was how do you do that when you're on the road so much? And, um, you know, I had prior, when I worked for uh, Roland, I, I had, you know, I was traveling 180 days a year and, you know, you, like you said, that sense of normalcy can start to disappear and it's really easy to throw your healthy habits out the window because you're, you're busy and you're doing a lot of stuff um, in regards to like, you know, so Umphreys McGee as I've been around a lot of artists and I'm sure not as many as you, Alicia, but, but, you know, those guys are very professional and they keep stick to a very strict timeline and keep things moving the way that they need to. And the moment that that starts to break down, it becomes a problem, you know, everywhere, uh, you know, I, you're talking about a, a, an artist that, oh, on average, probably pay, plays for 3,000 people a night. And they have a couple semi-trucks full of equipment that needs to be somewhere else and set up ready to go 24 hours later. And all of that is such a precise operation that I don't think I could do it, honestly. I, I think I would fail miserably at it. You know, I was talking to Robbie Williams, their, their uh, road manager, and, uh, you know, I'm like, how do you, how do you not forget half your shit at every single event? He was like every single box, every single tub, every single crate, we know exactly what goes in it. It's numbered, it's labeled that, you know, we put them on the, on the truck in a specific order. And despite all that, I've actually asked the members of the band at one point, I'm like, what's the, what's the, uh, um, what's the worst thing you've left behind at a venue? And, uh, it was Jake Seninger actually told me my guitar. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's kind of important, but, um, I can't know, imagine I, the logistics of that. Like that is so yeah. like against my personality in every way, shape or form to organize that. So yeah, the you know, another... is imperative, you know, they know exactly how they load the truck like Tetris and they know exactly yeah. how it goes. And, and at Tetris every venue, yeah. um, at every venue, they're working with a different crew on the ground of stagehands. So, you know, they have to direct traffic every day with a new set of people. On I would think it. it would be a lot harder for a festival because mm-hmm. it's not like you're on tour with Madonna and she does the same damn thing every, every night or every other night, right? Like the festival, it's all sort of one time thing. It's and it's sort of a different setup. There's definitely right? a lot of gear, you know, a lot of, here a lot of different vendors and so yeah it takes a lot of advanced preparation a lot of organization by all of the teams to know what goes where what when you know even for a specific uh act you can say you know to play on the stage at 5 p.m that transition between one act to the next act you have to think about the work that went into planning just that transition and what size risers are going to be on the stage how many what specific backline gear goes for the next person. So that's all advanced plan so that it looks like, oh, those guys just slid that drum right up there and those keyboards. But, you know, they had to know what make and model, what size, uh, what power, you know, supply, all of the things to make sure that that one act goes on and one act goes on, uh, off and on. And the band walks on and all their stuff is there just as it should be. Um, well, that's a know- lot of people. <laughs> You know, actually, a festival is probably easier because they don't have a custom stage to move around. It's just mm. the band and the band's equipment, not the stage. 
And I, no. I, you know what? I, I want I want to speak to that because you know, having worked working in the musical instrument industry for eight years, dude, it it's it. You, you use the word Tetris for loading the truck. Tetris would be easy compared to plugging ten different types of everything into everything else, like. And then, you know, and then the thing is too, is it's all running into a soundboard and it, you, I mean, dude, the, the amount, it's just, it's kind of like, it's kind of like trying to match two non-matching types of code, like .NET and PHP. Like they just don't jive well, my, well together. My point is at least you don't have 30 <clears throat> semi-trailers of stage shit to move to. I think yeah, you have 30, you, you have to have 30 <laughs> semis from all the different artists with right. their shit that they show. Cause they're still showing up with their stuff. Like, I mean, that's it. That truck is loaded and ready to go wherever it is they're going, whether it's a festival or anything else. I think they still show up with a relatively similar amount of gear. And, and the reason for that is like, you know, that, that, okay. So the next day think- they're going somewhere else. Cables go bad, pedals break. So here, I'll give you an example. Most people don't think about this. So once again, I worked for Roland, the world's largest maker of electronic musical instruments. Everything's, so many things are digital and electronic and all those components are held together with tiny little drops of of solder. And that, those guitar pedals, keyboards, everything, they're getting shoved into cases, they're riding in trucks, they're bouncing up and down, they're getting dropped and stuff like that. And sometimes you just don't have a good connection. You go to plug in a guitar and it just squeals and stuff like that. And and you have to have all that extra crap with you. Um, so, so Joel travels with a Hammond organ, which his road crew probably hates him for that. Joel actually has a second Hammond organ at home that exists strictly for parts, you know, and it's just like weird stuff like that. And and when it comes to, you know, most artists are very particular about their sound, their gear, their setup, and they don't want to be up on stage wrestling with bad anything. And I I would imagine from an artist relations standpoint, nothing will piss them off faster than you accidentally making them sound like crap on stage. Is that true? Um, sure. You know, a lot of them are traveling with their own gear and their own crew, right? So, you know, they're used to dealing with things like that. As you said, things short out, you know, you're dealing with gear. Um, and so the magic of that is, you know, having your, your crew that knows how to fix your stuff or that is used to dealing with your, the particulars of your issues that come along with whatever your pedal setup is, or if you have a complicated rig, um, but yeah, no one wants to be, no one wants to sound bad in the middle of a show. That's for sure. Because so, w- the audience, you know, blames it on the artist. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and, and also, you know, when, I mean, it's the same way with giving a speech or teaching or doing anything else. If you're distracted by something that takes you off of your game, it's hard to do what you need to do. It's just not, it's not easy. So for, for if, if let's, as we're hypothetically planning our fictional, uh, festival here. What's something that I would likely not think of without experience when it came to planning a festival that would be critical to it occurring? Like, like with fire festival, they just didn't have enough time to get permits and build stuff and, and things sure, like that's that. One, You know, uh, they, they had poor, uh, weather plans, you know, clearly, um, they didn't have, you know, sa- safety, um, is really the number one thing uh, when you're planning all of the elements that go around that. It's not just, 
you know, weather, but it's, but it's all kind of safety measures, exits and, you know, um, having things planned that can play over the, the speakers uh, in, in any type of emergency, different messaging that you can get out to the masses quickly, uh, as well as, you know, something that you wouldn't think of. I don't know how to make sure there's enough fuel on site uh, to power all the, the vehicles that you're running or the generators or the golf carts or um, all of the things that run on fuel, you know, making sure that that's a major piece of, of the puzzle uh, for any festival. Heavy equipment, uh, how do you um, plan your heavy equipment needs? Um, making sure that you don't have too much heavy equipment on site, uh, but also that you don't have, um, you know, so, so things aren't just laying around. Uh, tons of forklifts sitting around because everybody needed one, but coordinating that effort so that everybody gets it when they need it. And, and you are maximizing the time with all of that equipment and, and not having too much or too little. It's a real like sweet spot. What, what about permits and ordinance and stuff like that? How, how big of, is that easy or is that, is that a giant pain? Um, I think it depends on where you are and what municipalities you're working under. Every single place is going to be different. As we know in this country, nothing is standardized state to state, which is, you know, sometimes good and sometimes not so good. It would be great if you just had to go to the permit office, take your ticket, wait in line and, and be out. But everywhere is different, um, whether you're in a rural community or an urban community like the, the rules are going to be all over the place and really being able to navigate that and having, you know, legal teams and, and all of those and community relations uh, is super important because a lot of times you are going into a community and becoming part of it in some way, whether they want you there or they don't want you there, it, it, you know, every single festival is going to deal with a different set of circumstances. I think I've already realized that I would be a terrible festival planner. I, I may have crossed that off my future startups. I mean, this, I would imagine that the attention to detail is probably mind numbing. Um, you know, just from a, you, you talk about just being able to just not doing one simple thing could, you know, backlog 900 other things. I mean, I think that's the, the same in a lot of different businesses. So, you know, now, as far as like capital requirements, um, that, I mean, that's got to be big. I mean, because you're, are you typically paying artists ahead of time? Does that occur after? Um, um, or, you know, like, I mean, what's, what's the, how, how does that work along with, and then and maybe even speak to things like being prepared to potentially give refunds? Every artist gets a deposit. And really the size of that deposit and, and how far in advance you pay that deposit depends a lot upon how well capitalized your company is. Um, say that. So, so like the, AEG, AEG and Live Nation are the larger, are the, are the big kids. So, so you would, standard, you're not worried about them, right? right. Okay. Correct. And there's standard deposit terms with those companies because they don't. Uh, have a history of stiffing artists, right? They get they the artist knows they play the show with those entities. They're going to get paid, um, especially if you're just starting out. You're probably paying fifty to one hundred percent in advance. For the larger promoters, that's not the case. You're paying, you know, upon completion of the performance for the majority of of the fee. Um, so, you know, capital is extremely important if you're starting out. 
all of your vendors are going to be requiring various levels of deposits just along that same scale as the artists. And really that's where that experience and trust and longevity plays into, you know, your cash flow. <laughs> so obviously cash flow is the lifeblood of any business. Now, when, now that we, uh, let's just say we, we planned this and we did well, we were well capitalized. We got all our permits in place. We let Matt set up all the equipment. So it's just dialed in exactly where it needs to be. Matt, you know how to tune a guitar, right? Uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I know how um, to play the harmonica though. I, nice. We all do, Matt. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, the, that's on my list of what I call tolerance instruments, meaning everyone has a very finite tolerance, like the kazoo, oboes, banjos are also on that list for me. Um, so now, now the day of the show arrives and we talked about cash flow. So obviously you have advanced ticket sales. Is that, is, is that the major portion of the revenue or is it the vending and other stuff that goes on at, at the actual event? Uh, that all plays into it. And again, it depends on the size of your event, right? And what some some music festivals don't have as many vendors or, or you know, some have a lot. You know, food and beverage is obviously uh, a, a big piece of, of sales and on-site, especially if people are camping, right? They're eating there, they're drinking there, they're sleeping there. So you have to provide outside of just necessity. People are staying in places for days. You want to provide them with great food and beverage options. So that's a big piece of it. Um, but ticket sales are always, you know, the bulk of your revenue, I would say, uh, in these, in these circumstances. And, um, Sorry, what was it? What was this part two of that question? Oh, I was just, you know, as far as like, you know, I, I was up late last night improving our own business plan. And, you know, there's so many, you know, detailed line items that can, you know, everything, I mean, everything from parking to sure. tickets <laughs> to, you know, and, and, and then, you know, one of the things that I, you know, I think a lot of people don't, don't understand or wrap their arms around is the, 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 price of actually promoting the event is is it is insanely high um right you have to think about all, all the things that that we've already covered but uh, tons of line items that we haven't even covered either too um there's thousands upon thousands of line items of expenses in in a festival uh it's a very expensive business to go into to start up yeah. And that's one of the things that, you know, uh, I, a lot of people, I think they don't consider is like right now we've got, you know, a lot of postponement of different events. There was probably a hell of a lot of promotion that went into that. Yeah. And marketing. That, and th yeah. Well, those, those, become those dollars sunk, are lost, right? Yeah. That's sunk costs at this point and those are gone. And, uh, you know, so you, you've been doing this for, for 15 years. How have you seen the landscape or the expense structure change around marketing? Like what was, because yeah, 15 years ago, if people don't think about this, 15 years ago, was was the iPhone even out then? I don't think so. I, iPhone no. came out but around there definitely 2007. Wasn't, you yeah. know, there yeah. wasn't face, Facebook and Instagram advertising wasn't a thing then, right? You were still using your kind of straightforward platforms. Um, you were definitely advertising digitally, but not at the scale that we're advertising digitally now. There wasn't any targeting um, at that point. Uh, there wasn't sophisticated digital marketing. It was kind of like, how many people can you reach on this 
email blast or or on this web banner uh, what what's the what's the reach on that website to place you know banners i mean that's where when i started that's what we were doing um radio print ads street team billboards which are all still a key you know part of a marketing mix depending on what you're promoting and who you're promoting it to but the bulk of marketing for music these days is digitally and hyper targeted yeah so and is that i mean is that really the key now just really chasing down that metadata and knowing that someone has liked a page or searched something and like you said that targeted nature is that i mean it, it well music it, is it, difficult because music is is about a fan community right and so if you finding that that community is is essential but a lot of times you still have to reach that during in a in a media mix because they're not all living in one place online together. That would that would make the marketing rather easy, right? But that's not how, how it works. And most things people want to hear from their friends that they trust that this is something that is worth going to because they heard about it. So um, you have to develop that over time. Yeah, and we mentioned earlier, like giving some consideration to what amount of tickets an act at a festival might might uh might draw and i obviously you met you mentioned some of the social media following that's obviously kind of a built-in is that something that that uh festivals negotiate require or ask of artists that they do x amount of promotion mention or anything to their own fans or followers yeah that's definitely in in the ask mix depending on the artist you know you would put different emphasis on that um some artists are happy to do it and understand that that's part of like their own culture of their own fan base online is to want to talk about where they're playing other acts uh like to say that their social media is highly curated and and they don't like to post about where they're playing um which is always a, a unique conversation to have but yes we definitely ask that the artists promote their performance. As, as someone who considers himself a promoter of stuff, um, the idea that your social media was, was highly curated and you didn't want to mention where you were going to be or what you were doing seems a little odd. Um, For yeah. sure. Matt, what's something about live music that you've learned either today or rec or over the years that really surprised you either about like, I don't know, just anything about the whole, the whole live event business. Um, surprised me. Well, I, I I'll, let's start. Okay. You think about that. I was, I, I'll, I'll ask Matt first. Okay. I don't know. I think that's a great question. Um, <laughs> Do you I don't know. I'm here to stump everyone recording things live. Yeah. I I think for myself, I think that, you know, I I mentioned having, I've had kind of an interesting glimpse, Um, you know, working for Roland put me in front of a lot of interesting situations. And, you know, like one of the things that uh, even though it's not a concert, it might as well be, I'm sure you've been to the NAM convention. Um, Massive. So when I used to work for Roland, our booth was an acre is the size of a football field. Wow. And I mean, we had our own theater in the, in the, in, in within that. And just like seeing 
how much logistics go in to shows or events that you as you as a participant or attendee might think, Oh, this isn't, this isn't that big of a show, you know? And like, and, and, you know, 500 people is, is a, it can, is a lot of people to deal with. Totally. 300 people is a lot of people to deal with. And then, and then, you know, the, well, you the mechanics of waiting in a line. Right. right. Oh shit. That's, I mean, that's, oh man, that's something. And that's going to be an interesting new dynamic for sports in general. Um, you know, I've, I've been stuck in line. I remember, uh, so, you know, the, the Kansas city chiefs have been in the, the postseason the last couple of years and, um, not, not this year, but the year before my wife and I waited in line in eight degree weather for two hours to get into a game and we're literally running to our seats for kickoff. And it was probably, I mean, it threw so much salt on the flavor of, of the day, you know, just that, that frustrating feeling and stuff like that. And, you know, that was, that was just because of a simple change in the way that they wanted to check bags or do something on the way in. And it, but it, but it had this ripple effect. And some of the things that, you know, I've seen over the years is, you know, as, as ticketing transitioned to more digital formats, they've had some breakdowns at the door and different stuff. There was a Garth Brooks show somewhere in Tennessee or somewhere like that, where, where they were two hours behind on letting people in, like literally some people missed the whole show. And it had to do with the fact that it, it wasn't logistically planned because they ha everyone was relying on their phone to have an internet signal to bring up their ticket. And then all of a sudden when you had, 15,000 people there right next to the tower, it was overwhelmed and the scanners were broken or going slow and stuff like that. I mean, it's uh, uh, may maybe rather than asking what surprised you and you don't have to name names or throw anyone under the bus, but can, can we like to share an occasional story of failure? What's, what's a, what's a failure that you've experienced or had to overcome or had to adapt to really quickly. And we'll, we'll let that be how we close our episode out today. Okay. Um, well, I've been really lucky to work with some pretty amazing teams that have a lot of contingency plans, but you know, um, weather and mother nature, uh, you, you really can't ever have, uh, you can't know when, when that's going to kind of run its course. Um, so I think, you know, that to me is always the biggest thing of, of running a music festival is, is battling the weather, especially because we are um, in uh, northwestern Michigan with electric forests right up against Lake Michigan. The weather patterns there, they come in, they come out really quickly, really fast. So knowing those uh, things is, is essential. So, you know, we, we constantly have... Um, weather events and thunderstorms and when you have lightning you have to evacuate people right so i'll say you know many many times over the past 10 years uh, and especially recently we have had to evacuate 50,000 people from a venue and then um, reschedule the night's events in the on the fly uh, coordinate with 50 artists to adjust their set times luckily you know that goes back to these relationships saying like okay we want to make sure everybody can play tonight that was on the schedule and we were closed for two hours so can you shorten the you can we shorten this up can we talk to the stage crew and instead of an hour between acts can we make it 20 minutes um and being having that team that knows how to work together and adapt and then 
get 50,000 people back in and closing out the weekend is something that, that we had to do this past year at Electric Forest. And I would say that's those days are really trying, but when, when they happen and it's complete and it all works, um, those are definitely the most rewarding and, and the team can like really celebrate together that um, all the planning is worth it. And uh, having a dynamic of people that have worked together for a long time and can really trust each other to make those on the fly changes and execute them is the key. Matt, have you participated? Have you been involved in a in a live event fail or something like that? I, I, I'll let you think about that for a second. I actually went. I can't. This is probably oh eight or nine years ago. I went when I lived in Indianapolis. I went to see fish at Deer Creek, Noblesville, right there, and uh, it, it was looking kind of stormy. Uh, they came out, played one song, and the heavens just opened up, and we had to. They cleared the whole venue go back to your cars, people. Now we were in the pavilion and we we're able to stay for a while, but they literally, you know, had to force everyone out and get, like, go back to your cars and doing it in a torrential downpour. Um, and like I said, I think they played one song or maybe like part of one. It was, it was not good timing as far as that. And I've also uh, been at a, at, at a Royals game where, you know, with lightning, not only lightning, but they were afraid of tornadoes and lightning. In that case, we just beelined to the car and went home. We didn't, we didn't wait that out. But Matt, have you been involved in anything like that? I've definitely seen that at some, like a couple soccer games where bad weather came in, but probably the biggest failure I've seen is our own podcast and trying to do it live. (laughs) (laughs) Which time? Yeah, that's been a disaster a few times. So are you are you referring to the ones where where we've actually had a live audience or just this just the daily the live streaming from our office has always been a challenge you know, you know and it's it you that's i mean you have a good point because i think a lot of people just don't understand like the kind of weird shit that can go wrong just even trying to have two people talk into a microphone and record and now and then, but Matt, that goes back to that point of trying to change the acts out and trying to do all this mm-hmm. different stuff. It's like everyone knows in the in the in the actual podcast studio, don't don't touch Matt's dials. No, don't touch you're my right. levels, man. Like, I mean, nothing that'll drive me crazy. And then there's always like weird stuff. I'll, 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 I remember when we had two episodes and we had a crackle. Had a had a freaking crackle, and it just was like occasionally about every thirty seconds you'd just hear a little crackle. And um, after troubleshooting that for about four hours, we literally took everything apart, put it back together, only to then come to the conclusion that because of the the HD cameras, the live stream cameras that we had hooked up, we were overpowering the computer. So yeah. after like <laughs> literally going like nuts and like, I mean, I was like, and, and here's the thing, a crackle is probably the worst thing you can get because it's usually a connection or something weird or like, a, like I said, like a solder joint. And I was, oh, I was about at the end of my rope with that. Well, once again, with us today, we had Alicia Carlin. Uh, if you want to learn more about Alicia, you can, she was in, featured in the Realist Guide to a Successful Music Career. Yes, thank you thank again you. for that. <laughs> Thank you for that. For uh, that, that is actually a book that I have participated in in writing that people actually read. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, and, and I'm 
sure you're aware at one point that actually went to number one on Amazon for a short period and the in the uh, music category. So thank yeah. you for participating in that. That was a lot of fun. And I learned a lot of stuff. Um, might have to make a bit of a, a of an addendum or re- put a new chapter onto that uh, real quick. But <laughs> <laughs> it's it's been a different, it's a different world. So the 2020 um, chapter. Yeah, or something. Yeah, just like, hey, here's the rest of the shit that you didn't think about in advance. But <laughs> yeah, th- this was really interesting. And once again, with this Alicia Carlin, that's with a K, um, it, the VP of Global Touring and Talent for AEG Presents, one of the the brilliant and hardworking minds behind all of the cool live stuff that you like to go and see. Um, anyway, I'm gonna Thanks get. I'm so gonna. Much. I'm gonna. Yeah, I'm gonna get back to planning my next festival, whenever okay. that might be. See you next time. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Startup Hustle with Matt DeCorsi and Matt Watson. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit startuphustle.xyz. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. And we'll catch you next time on Startup Hustle.